Crank up the volume and get ready for real-world bird hunting by listening to the Wingman Podcast by Eastman's. Now your host, Todd Helms. All right, hey everybody, Todd Helms here with another episode of the Wingman Podcast. And I have a very unique dude on today up from or from Helena, Montana, Chad Carmen. Chad um, actually is a connection through the Eastman side of things through RMEF. And he and I got visiting earlier in the year and realized that we have a lot in common when we like because we like to chase stuff with wings. So Chad, how's it going, man? It's going good, man. We uh, we finally got snow two days after the season closed here in Montana, which is kind of <laughs> awkward to see. But hey, you know, maybe we'll get it and prevent some fires this year. Yeah, we. I woke up to a dusting this morning too. I let I let Mackinac out last night before bed, and it was starting to spit snow, and you could see it rolling over the mountains before dark. But I thought I right, won't get won't get to us. It a lot of times it fizzles before it gets out in the valley, but. Yeah, we had a little bit, but we still don't have birds. So, well, I moved to Helena, which is supposed to get significantly more snow than Missoula, where the headquarters at. And uh, pretty much the time that I've moved here has been completely dry. We got two feet of snow in October, and I went and bought a plow for my ranger, and uh, we haven't pretty much had any snow since. So I guess I I screwed the whole city as far as getting snow by buying a plow because I'm lazy. I hear that's that's hilarious. When I moved to Powell here in Wyoming, this is like the banana belt of Wyoming. Doesn't get a ton of snow. It's it's high desert, so it doesn't get a lot of precipitation at all. But I moved from Snow Belt USA in the UP in Michigan, and uh, the first two winters we I that my wife and family and I lived in Powell, we had like tons and tons of snow and everybody was everybody was blaming me for bringing it from lake superior with me (laughs) everyone in montana and wyoming and the west just loves blaming whoever moved here for bringing whatever bad problems they have (laughs) just come into montana and people be like you brought those with you from oklahoma yeah exactly oh goodness well, Chad, what uh, explain to us a little bit about what you do with RMEF, and and we'll talk we talk elk a little bit, obviously, because I love elk as much as probably as much or as you do, but um, I'd really like to talk of obviously about ducks, geese. Our seasons are wrapped up. We still got late geese down here. You said you just said you were out completely up there now in the Pacific Flyway, so you're done, which ugh, can't imagine, but. So what what do you, what does Chad Carmen do for RMEF? Yeah, so uh, I'm in charge of a lot of the digital marketing efforts at RMEF. I moved up in late 2016 from Oklahoma um, to Missoula, basically sight unseen. I uh, packed up my dog Buster then, and we went across country with nothing but a U-Haul and uh, left all my family back there. And so I oversee our digital programs from email to website, um, our army of films, uh, photography, um, basically anything to do with new age media. Uh, I was responsible for coming in and starting that program. And um, I, I can tell you, I came in with a lot of big ideas and was quickly humbled by what an amazing organization it is um and how strong a lot of the old school marketing techniques are there so it's been a a fantastic fantastic program for me to learn more than anything that i brought to the organization so 
very humbling, very fun. Obviously, it is 100% all about elk, and uh, it's an amazing creature. It got me into elk hunting when I moved here. Um, but, you know, my passion has been waterfowl. Um, my passion has been waterfowl for a long time and mainly because of dogs. Um, dogs primarily got me into waterfowl hunting back in college. And, uh, I have been 100% dogs and waterfowl ever since. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a good excuse to get into waterfowl. That's for sure. It's like the, the two are just inextricably linked. What's that? Like I'm a marketing guy, so I kind of help you segue. <laughs> I love that segue. You did a beautiful job. Perfect. No, that's uh, I even get to use my dog elk hunting a little bit. He's uh, he he runs Grizzly Protection for us on elk hunts. Oh man, so. that's uh, I don't know. I, I feel like both of my dogs. They're I've, I've got fantastic switch dogs, and I feel like if either of them saw a grizzly, they'd run up and be like, "Hey, how's it going? What are you doing? You want to play?" You You'd think that, you know, mine, mine's real, mine's the same way. He's, he's super chill around the house. He loves people, but man, he, there's been on two separate occasions on hunts now. He's, he hasn't fended off a bear, but he's given us the warning that's, that there's a bear there. And both times, one time set up just glassing. And then another time was butchering a bull um, at night this year he started barking and growling and gave us the heads up and man i tell you what it's nice to have a dog that can do everything and i didn't know i didn't know if he'd do that or not but he does he did you might be surprised well i can tell you very specifically i will never be surprised because unlike you crazy people in wyoming i elk hunt where there is not supposed to be any grizzly bears <laughs> And, and I say that in the irony, you know, I, I was very fortunate this elk season. I, I actually harvested a bull and a cow within 24 hours. And um, it, was on, it was on block management. And I've made it a point to make a really good friend with private landowners. And so I was, I was so fortunate this year. The block management owner went and got his Polaris, came up and backed up and pulled both of my elk out for me. So I didn't have to worry about it. But then he goes, oh, yeah, did you happen to see any bear tracks down here? We've got a biologist that's got cameras set up because they think a grizz is running in this area. And I was like, well, there goes my elk spot. I don't want to hunt here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not the they're not the boogeyman that everybody makes them out to be. But you definitely got to keep your head on the swivel. And the dog, the dog helps. I, I tell you what, early in our early seasons down here in that first split, there's a real possibility in some of these areas around where we live when you're out duck hunting to bump into a bear. Um, one of our better spots is actually right in the heart of grizzly habitat. And there's bears on that river all the time. And uh, I've never, I've never busted one, never seen, never even seen tracks where I duck hunt, but they're there. They're there. And I tell you, walking in in the dark with a shotgun in a case or unloaded, it makes you think twice. But usually, usually you got four or five guys with you or three or four guys with you and a couple of dogs and you're making a bunch of noise. Those bears aren't going to stick around. Well, I'm naive, man. We, uh, we hunted up in the Nine Pipes area north of Missoula a lot when I first moved here and was working and living over in Missoula. And 
I hunted with just me and Buster by myself. We'd go in. I'm carrying a sack of decoys. He's falling behind me. I've got my gun in my case. You know, everything's safe. Couldn't run out of sight in a day because you got your waders on and you're walking around like a moon man. But I, I hunted there for two years, three years, and until I finally saw the sign that said, warning, grizzlies in area. And I had no idea that I was even hunting in grizzly country. And that's just the naivety of moving here from Oklahoma, where it's not a thing. You are the right. top of the chain in Oklahoma. You might see a cougar every now and then or mountain lion. Um, but other than that, it's coyotes and there's some black bear. But um, in Oklahoma, you just weren't worried about predators. So I hunted all over Montana those first two years. And, you know, I didn't even carry bear spray with me most of the time. And then someone was like, hey, you might want to at least think about carrying bear spray with you when you're duck hunting up there. And I said, what, why, what are you talking about? Oh yeah. There's a, there's plenty of grizz up there on the reservation. Sure enough. I go, look, there's even a Montana or a, I think they call it like the flathead Valley grizz cam. And it's just this social media account <laughs> in that area. And I'm going, Oh, this, this is fantastic. So yeah, I'm, I'm that idiot that you are. You're we're lucky. We didn't hear about getting eaten by a grizzly wild duck hunting. Oh, that's hilarious. No, good good for you. Yeah, you had, there was a guy up in your neck of the woods two years ago that shot that grizzly while he was pheasant hunting. Oh, oh yeah. Dog flushed it out of a ditch, out of an irrigation ditch, and it charged him, and he killed it with his 12-gauge and pheasant loads at, like, a matter of feet. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. Yeah, you just never know. You just never know, but... So how was your season this year? We talked a little bit earlier, but. Yeah, no, the, the season was good, man. Um, early season, like I said, I was fortunate to fill both of my archery tags uh, with elk early. So I got to do a lot more early season duck and goose hunting. And I connected with a guy here in Helena and just he and I went out and ran, you know, um, smaller spreads, 10 dozen or so goose hunting and we had a lot of success early on. Um, I feel like we got that big cold front that came through in October with all right. the snow. We got a big push of geese then. And then I'm not sure that we're not still hunting the exact same geese however many months later at this point because um, we were, I mean, everything just dropped right into the spreads. We had a lot of success, a lot of two-man linnets early on because everybody else was chasing big game. And then once big game season was over and everybody else started hunting, man, birds got super weary. They would not come in. You could tell they've been hunted. Everybody's slamming the same fields here in this valley. Um, and, you know, you've probably seen we got introduced because I love hunting golden eyes. Right. Uh, me and a buddy love hunting golden eyes on the river. It's To me, it's the closest thing you can find to dove hunting, which was what I – really grew up doing in sure. Oklahoma. Sure. And I just love the challenge of hunting those little missiles on the big Missouri river. And it's really good golden eye hunting when everything else is frozen up. And I mean, the best hunt we've ever had, it was six degrees at the boat launch. There's sheets of ice coming down the river. We're chasing decoys that are getting swept up by um, ice. And we just never had that this year. So, you know, we went out and had a couple of good shoots. We had a couple of two-man, three-man limits, but nothing like the five or six-man limits that we'd have in the years past where it was just um, why the Wild West, you know, shooting left and right. So it was a slow season for Golden Eyes, but uh, 
I have a young one-year-old dog uh, or 14-month-old dog right now. This was her first season. And to me, it was actually really good having a slower season because it got to teach her a little bit of patience. She's a really high energy, high drive dog. So getting to let there, getting to sit there and let her wind it out of her system and understand whining doesn't get you retrieves, patience gets you retrieves. And then, you know, having a bumper or having a bird that we shot that I could toss out when she calmed down as that positive reinforcement was actually really useful for me. So I expected this year to be slow for me anyways, because this was a training year for my dog. Um, I didn't want to hunt in groups of seven or eight guys. I wanted to hunt in small groups, small amounts of birds, and we had success with that. Sorry. My wife popping in on the podcast. I, I, I wonder, oh, but hey, I got that's my- what That's what happens when you work from home. I got my new climate seat cushion for glassing in the there building. There you go, that's there you go. Awesome. <laughs> nice, nice. No, that's, I hear you. So what do you do with your golden eyes? Uh, jerky, almost yep. entirely 100% jerky. Um, I, especially this year, we uh, couldn't find a processor to process anything. So I decided to buy, invest in all my own gear, dehydrator, grinder, everything. And I'll tell you, I've never been happier. I've always processed my own big game, like cutting in the steaks is easy. You know, I would, working at the Elk Foundation, we had some partners there that we worked with and I could go actually rent out a grinder from the organization and I could make my own grinds and everything. So when I moved to Mont Helena, I didn't have that anymore. I invested in all my own stuff, started making my own antelope brats this year, my own jerky, my own burger, everything. And, you know, it's a blast, and that's that's what I turn the golden eyes into. It's one thousand percent jerky and dog treats. And people that know me, they realize when I say dog treats, that's not an insult. I probably treat my dogs better than most people treat their kids. So when I say I'm making a dog treat, like that's that's a good thing for that whatever I'm using it for. I mean, I I would I share backstrap with my dogs, so just take that for context. Yeah, no, I hear you. I do the dog treats too. Um, we don't shoot a lot of the golden eyes. We have lots and lots of them around, but we re I, we really focus on the puddle duck game. You know, shoot trying to shoot mallards and and we always end up. It's wild. We actually have teal here almost every year. There's more here this year than normal because it's mild, but even when it's cold, we still have green wing teal that hang out all winter. Um, but yeah, looking for those mostly mallards, but pintails and widgeon and and of course you could do any you. Could, eat those good grief i could my kids would eat mallard every day of the week if i let them you know just pluck yeah. those breasts and flay them off and treat them like a ribeye and man, off, i'll tell you awful air, good. Fryer, air fryer with that breast skin on is yeah. phenomenal to get that crispiness but i'll tell you my new foray i ventured into this year i started plucking all of my geese to where i had the goose and the breast fat on there and you might know Brad Fenson. He's in the industry. He's a chef. Um, he sent me a recipe for making goose bacon. And I turned a ton of my goose breast into goose bacon. And that fat cap on top works just like a fat cap in regular bacon. And between that and jerky, I don't know if I'd ever want to make my goose into anything else. I mean, I literally <laughs> eat goose bacon almost daily for breakfast. It is so good. Well, it's funny you say that because... 
one of our partners is High Mountain Seasonings out of, down here out of Riverton, and they make a zillion different products, right? And they have a bacon cure. And, That's what I use. Yeah, and Brian Tucker told me, he's like, dude, if you're not making goose bacon, you are missing out. We haven't killed hardly any geese this year. I mean, it's been like we ha- we just we haven't done it. You know, there's some geese north of us, but we just don't have a lot of geese yet. And I'm kind of hoping that even with this long-range forecast looking really, really balmy for the next 15 days, I'm hoping we get some honkers because that would be fun. I would really like to do some some of that goose bacon. I know I've done pastrami and jerky and a zillion other things. A lot of my geese, it seems like, anymore get turned into, like, Polish sausage and bratwurst and stuff like that. It's they're just good that way. And, and, you know, I've got, I've got three kids and a wife and I have to utilize that, that meat the way it's going to be eaten. And if I'm cooking, if I'm roasting a whole goose or smoking a whole goose on my Traeger and my kids hate it, it's not going to get, it's not going to get eaten. But if they mow down a Polish sausage over the campfire, when we're cutting firewood, there you go. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, my wife's a great sport on eating wild game. She didn't really grow up on wild game or hunting or anything. We actually just got her hunter safety two weeks ago. So I'm hoping she's going to be in the duck blind with me next year. Really excited about that. But um, I make the goose bacon. I absolutely love it. She won't even try it. It's not that she hasn't, she doesn't like it. She won't even try it. But I made a big old batch of goose jerky. And she went in there and cranked down on that. We finished that bag and she goes, so when are you going goose hunting again so you can make some more jerky? <laughs> so you make a great point there. You have to cook it the way people will eat it because you and I can only consume so much. And it's great that I love my daily goose bacon, but I can't eat goose bacon for the next five years from this year's kills. So exactly. I had to turn it into goose, goose jerky too. Yeah. No, you. It's. I agree with you 100%. 100%. No, I was just curious because when I first moved to Wyoming a dozen years ago, um, I've had I've lived in a bunch of different places in the state to places where there were hardly any ducks or geese at all. And literally, I just wrote a blog this morning for the email that goes out today on jump shooting. And jump shooting gets a bad rap, you know, a lot of the time. But there were there's places where it's the only game, it's the only possibility for you you to kill birds. And when I first moved to Wyoming, I lived over in the Black over in the Black Hills on the South Dakota border. And the only type of waterfowling I had was either jump shooting little stock ponds early in October or late in the season in December and January there was a warm water creek that, that it was small and it held 50 to 150, maybe 200 birds all winter long. And if I didn't go beat on them constantly, I could get pretty good jump shoots in and go end up with and kill a handful of ducks every every year. And I tell you what, for coming from Michigan, where waterfowling was a huge way of life for us, to moving to someplace that didn't really have waterfowl, that was, those hunts, those forays were... That's what those things kept me sane. You know, I tell you what. Look, man, I can't tell you how many times we all go sit out with the best of intentions. And it happens a lot up north of Missoula there in the Nine Pipes area. You go sit in a big pond 
you throw out your three dozen floaters and you have dreams and aspirations of filling a three-man limit with mallards and halfway through the morning you've got eight birds and you're like you know what let's go run through and jump shoot and check some of these other little potholes and you know there's that's a legitimate part of hunting that some you know no one should ever thumb their nose at any part of it i agree jump shooting is just as much fun as puddle duck hunting just as much fun as field hunting it's just a different version and ironically we train our dogs in the the testing side of things we train them to be able to do jump shooting as much as we do steadiness as much as we do field huts as much as we do remote sins it's all part of it and even when working with a dog um that dog is supposed to be able to do all things for you in a hunt so um i love the jump shooting side of things yeah and the and the reason i talked about that was when later on um i moved around and i moved to a, to actually where there was migratory birds in the state of wyoming and i remember one day i went out and i shot a whole pile of golden eyes and i brought them home and tried to cook them up like a mallard and i'm gagging and i'm like these things are terrible you know because we didn't we didn't have them we didn't really have golden eyes back in michigan you shoot maybe see one once in a great while but they're pretty rare so it was a, it was a learning curve and i ended up doing what you did i turned them into dog treats um and the dogs loved it i same thing my dog gets treated just as good as my kids do and big part of the family and so i was curious to hear what you did with them and because if there was some fancy recipe, I might I might go back to shooting them. But <laughs> no, and look, man. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of people that diver ducks get a bad rap, right? Like yes, everyone's like, do. oh, I don't want those dirty, fishy, frog-eating diver ducks. Like, why would anybody want those? They're greasy. And I mean, we ought to try and do something with them, right? And there's there's enough soy sauce. There's enough teriyaki out there to make anything taste fine. But I mean, I do, I do. I think, I think with jerky, with meat that's handled properly, just about anything will taste fine. And yeah, I'm not going to lie. You'll make a batch of jerky and you might not have, you might not have left it in that salt brine long enough to suck out the whatnot. And you might not dehydrate it just right enough. And all of a sudden you bite in, it's like, oh, that's muddy. Well, that's going to the dog treat side of things. The dog's super happy. It's getting used. You know, right, I mean, right. I'm not going to pretend that a diver duck tastes like a mallard. Oh, Don't no. get me wrong. I'm never going to make that argument. Well, um, I've had I've had some mallards that got, that got on a fish-eating kick that were every bit as nasty as any any golden eye that I ever tried to eat. So, I mean, it's not, a, it's not always a given. Down here in the center, over here in the central flyway, they're mostly eating grain and invertebrates and things like that. And they taste really good, but... Man, sometimes back in Michigan, especially, they get on those bays in the Great Lakes and they start eating fish, whether it was alewives or gobies or whatever. And whew, it didn't take them long to get tasting pretty nasty. So I was just, just interesting. It's just like anything else. It tastes like what they've been eating. Black bears that have been eating berries yep, taste like berries. Bears that have been eating fish taste like fish. Yep, I couldn't agree more. But so getting back to that the the training side of things we talked about doing the jump shooting my lab is trained and with an old school method the richard walters book um way old school i've got I'm, I'm working on getting a new dog here this spring 
and going to update some of my training skills because it's been nine years since I've trained a puppy. Yep. And so, I mean, it's like a bike you never forget, but it always helps to new things come to light, new tech, new ways of doing things are always improving. So that'll be a fun journey. But you slipped into something by accident. You were telling me on the phone that you never really anticipated, but you're really enjoying. And that's the HRC stuff. Yep. Yeah, so I, I got my first dog. I actually got him at one year old. Um, I wanted a hunting dog. I, I had, and there's a reason for me going back to this story this way. Um, I had gone hunting with an American Legion baseball coach of mine, his ex-Marine. We go out on this icy day, and his dog is breaking through ice, coming back, delivering the hand. All of a sudden, he sent his dog on a two-cast blind um, through the ice onto the opposite shore, onto a bird that was down and I'm sitting there watching all of this. Cause I had hunted with buddies that had dogs <laughs> and you know, they, they're the guys that they take a kennel out and they put their dog in a kennel sitting next to him in the duck blind. And then when it's all done, they'll throw a rock at each bird and the dog goes and picks up each bird and comes back or they're holding onto him with a leash and all this. Well, I went on this hunt and this guy's dog did all this stuff and I'm sitting there going, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Like, I need that. And so I got a hold of the group that trained his dog, and I bought a one-year-old dog. And it wasn't cheap, but I, that's the experience that I wanted duck hunting. Well, they did a lot of the test circuit then. They went through his HR title. And back then, I went, you know, someone else trained my dog. If he goes and gets a bunch of titles or contests, that doesn't really mean a lot to me. That's like me sponsoring a professional thoroughbred horse, right? Right, right. I'm not at these competitions. I just want my dog to go pick up my ducks. So fast forward eight years down the road, I have my best friend in Buster. This dog that I've literally traveled the country with has to this day probably picked up three or 4,000 birds for me. Um, people love him. I can set him next to a infant and he's going to be great and i can send him on a grader that's trying to take off and fly and he's going to jump in the air and bring it down and i go you know what i want a puppy out of him i don't care about getting this i don't care about getting that i want a puppy out of my best friend well come back into the dog world and dog people can be snobs right i mean that's just all there is to it and i start trying to find a, a female to breed with him he doesn't have any titles. So everyone that I know that's hunted with me, they want a puppy out of them because they've hunted with Buster. But everyone that has a great breeding female, they're like, I don't know your dog. He's an HR dog. He's got nothing on the AKC tied. And there's some credit to that, right? I mean, the titling world is meant to further the breed. So a high titled dog is our only way of knowing from someone in North Carolina knowing that a dog in Montana, what that dog's capable of are the titles that they have. So there's something right. good to that. I think that the titling world has elevated the breed, right? Because usually a title dog, they're going to have genetic testing. They're going to go through hips and elbows. They're going right. to have their eyes OFA'd. It's going to make healthier dog, right? They're not just breeding my brother-in-law's dog to my stepbrother's dog that right. way, right. you know, and so, um, so we fast forward and I can't find a female to breed. I'm putting out these stud ads with my comical Photoshop skills and my dog's in HR. No one's biting because he's just a hunting retriever. And for those that don't know, on the UKC side, that's only the second level 
of tests that you can have. It really doesn't take much for a dog to be an HR. Um, basically, steadiness can do a couple of marks, can run a blind, and they come back. You know, that's that's basically an HR test. Um, not to discredit it, but it doesn't say that a lot about your dog. So that was a challenge that I had. So I'm, I'm posting all this, and all of a sudden I see a litter announcement from a dog named Stroker that's on Facebook. And I'm going, wait a second. My old American Legion coach has a dog that runs in the SRS game named Stroker. Now, this dog is a Grand Retriever hunting champion on the, AK, on the HRC side, multi-time master champion. He has run the SRS and placed in the top three, which the SRS is dog versus dog. AKC and UKC hunt tests, HRC hunt tests, are dog versus test. So can your dog achieve this? Right. This dog is literally in the MLB of the hunt test world. And so I'm like, wait a second, stroker. There's no way there's this other stroker out there. I send a text to my old American Legion coach. And I said, hey, is this a litter of your stroker? And he goes, yeah, it sure is. We're doing a breeding right now. And I'm oh. going, this is a full circle all the way around. I can get a dog out of my ex-coach's new dog that got me into getting dogs. And I was like, you know what? I want it. I want, I want a dog. He goes, seriously? He's like, yeah, I'm looking for a female right now because I want to breed to Buster later on down the road. So I'm going to have my own female. He goes, you get pick of the litter. So you get the first female. Well, they go through this and the female that they had bred to extremely high titled dog, master hunter, uh, HRCH runs the field trial side of things and is the youngest dog ever to place in the amateur division of the SRS. Her name's Bailey. They call her a fire breathing dragon. So if you get on Amazon and you watch the 2019 SRS, you'll see both of them running that thing. You'll see Stroker, who's this big, giant, stoic, 120 pound monster. And then you'll see Bailey, who is this 60 pound, absolute fire breathing dragon. You can barely hold her back at the line because of how hard she wants to run. That was this breeding. So I'm getting all excited and I'm thinking I'm going to train this dog myself. Well, I get the, I've, I'm fortunate that I've got a great retriever club that was in Montana here that I had connected with and a guy that trains a lot of gun dogs named Nick Sheely out of Canton Retrievers. He doesn't run a lot of tests, but he trains a lot of phenomenal gun dogs. And so I knew I was going to have him as help. I also bought every book I could think of. I bought the Sporting Life Kennels Retriever University program, which is a phenomenal video program for first-time trainers. I get this puppy, and she goes through her first six months with me. I send her to Nick just for force fetch and force to pile because I knew those were two things I didn't want to screw up and I wanted him. So I send him to her for a month of training and he goes, this is the fastest dog I've ever had pick anything up. We did force fetch in three days. We did force to force to pile within a week and she's starting T drill three weeks into this. Like I thought we were just going to get these basics done in a month. Right. He goes, please let me have her for another three or four weeks. Well, at that time, I was moving from Missoula to Helena. We were looking for a house. Perfect timing. I was staying with my brother-in-law, and 
it was this serendipity of perfect things that happened where it was like, okay, yeah, it's going to be easier for than me having a six month old puppy in my brother-in-law's house who may hate me after this time period. <laughs> um, so I kept her with her. Well, she comes back and I've got her in March and I connect with a lady here in Helen named Mar Margot Ellis, who, if you ask anyone in the hunt test world about Margot Ellis, they are going to have stories to tell you. She is one of the most kind, gentle, wonderful, knowledgeable hunt test world people you'll ever met that will shove a boot up your butt faster than you could ever imagine. <laughs> and so I start training with her and I connect with this group out of Butte. We start training all summer long. I'm walking up to the line on this hunt test training world and my dog is doing things at six months that one and a half year old dogs aren't doing. And I'm going, oh man, I'm going to get hooked into this because I've got a dog that's way better than just a gun dog. Right. And so I found myself like I, I was an ex-athlete, right? I found myself walking up to the line with a little bit of swagger going, look what my <laughs> six month, look what my six month old dog can do. That competitive and drive got you. All of a sudden, my competitive drive kicked back in, and I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to have fun with this. And I'm watching what my dog can do, and I'm like, man, it's a disservice to her. Plus, I'm having a whole lot of fun running these things. So I actually ran my first HRC test this summer from that and AKC test from that. And I can tell you, I've played in front of 10,000 people on the baseball field. And I was called cool as a cucumber, calm, collected, good to go on that side of things. You put me in front of 20 people in the quote unquote gallery, which are all <laughs> friends and family of the dogs, hoping that my dog came back with the bird. And I'm sitting there wanting to throw up. I bet. Um, and it's sad because your dog, when you walk to the line, your dog feeds off of your emotions, right? Oh, yeah. Like a lot of people that have trouble with dogs, their dog is super antsy and they're sitting there screaming and yelling and they're super antsy and the dog picks up on that. If you're calm, cool and collected, your dog's going to be calm, cool and collected. And, you know, I'm sitting here wanting to throw up on the HRC test. And so my dog's jacked up and amped up oh, and super yeah. excited, but we got through it. It was a great experience. Um, the AKC test the following weekend was an absolute just – it was comical, right? So we go up to sit up and run the land portion of it. She hammers her first mark, comes back, sets up for her second mark, which in AKC has to be a flyer. So they actually throw a live bird that's, that's pen-raised, tagged. They shoot it, and the dog has to run out there and get it. So this is the first time I screwed up. She had only been live intro to birds – you know, a week or two before, and they oh, were wrapped. Man. They were wrapped with um, athletic wrap, so they couldn't whack her, right? But we we worked into it. The athletic wrap broke off. She got smacked in the face. She still went after him. So in my mind, I'm going, she's good, no problem. Well, she runs out after that mark, just like divers do on the river every time you're hunting goldeneye. All of a sudden, they, it pops up back to life and absolutely whacks her in the face like nothing you've ever seen. And so she's going, wait a second, something's wrong here. She breaks off of the bird and starts this, developing this big hunt in a 75-yard area. And I'm like sick to my stomach, right? The whole purpose of a started test is they go out there, 
they get it and they bring it back. Right. right. Nothing fancy. Right. But now right. she's looking for a dead bird. Right. And there is no dead bird. There's this bird running away. And now it's bedded down. So I turn around and I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? I'm on the line as a novice trainer. Well, we've been working hand signals. So I asked the judge, can I give her hand signals? And they're like, people typically don't do that in a started test, but go for it. Give it a shot. So I, I whistle stop her and I give her an over. I give her a back. I work her through it. She's taking every cast perfect. There's even a, a, a log out there. And she takes the cast over the log perfectly, which is something you train, right? But that's a higher level training. Well, I'm sending her all these places and she's just running back and forth where I think the bird is. And finally, I whistle tweet her to come in because I'm like, man, we failed it. She can't find it. She's not going to pick up that bird. She stumbles over the bird on her way in. I was so nervous. I was casting her to the wrong place for a solid like two minutes. And she took every cast perfectly. Oh. Comes back, I take the bird, I'm ready to throw up, I turn around, the judge goes, your dog's only as smart as you are. Yeah. But that was impressive. And let me just walk off. And there I am, like, hat in my hand going, you gotta be kidding. And we passed, and, you know, it was a funny experience, but, um, you know, my friend Margo, she runs the, the, the full hunt test circuit. I'm engulfed in it, I'm hooked. Here now I'm planning how I'm going to travel across the Western United States this spring and do all these hunt tests. And I know that was a really long winded roundabout way of saying that, but um, that's, that's kind of how I got hooked. No, I think that's, I think that's great. You know, I look at that, your experience as going right back to where we started talking about it's the dog that gets you, the dog got you into it in the first place, you know, and now you're you're finding a reason to have, you know, as I'm sitting here talking to you, your dogs are coming in and out, checking on <laughs> you and seeing what's going on. And I, I love it. I love it. Um, but you're finding a reason to have something to do with those dogs year round. You're hunting them in the fall. You're working HRC tests the rest of the time. You're training. You're doing all these different things. And you've, you've gotten into a community, a dog community there and it's become a way of life and i think you know i see it i see the same thing with with horses with whether it's roping or running barrels or it's the same way living in the west horses are a big deal and there's no hat it doesn't seem like there's any halfway with them you're either into horses big time and you've got good ones or you've got horses that hang out in a pasture and really don't do much and when you need them they're a pain in the butt to deal with it's the same thing with dogs you know, if you're not working those dogs all the time, and I'm at a point, I'm at a point with my dog, Mackinac, he'll be nine here in a couple of weeks. And so I don't train him like I did when he was a year old, two years old, three, four, where we were down, we were working on marks, we were working on blinds, we were working on hand signals and working on uh, good grief throw three, throw two bumpers in the river at the same time. And you got to bring me one, not try to get them both, you know, and trying to get him to figure out that's those things. Well, now he's pretty much got that. And so now we may throw the bumper a couple times a week in the backyard, five or six throws, his tongue's get, you know, lolling out and he's happy and having a good time. He didn't want to quit, but if I keep it up, he's going to be sore, you know? So it's like, 
it's more important for him to go out on those elk hunts and go fly fishing with me in the mountains in the summertime and, and go for swims and go in the drift boat and hang out with the kids because that's his role. You know, he'll, he could still get it done in the field. I mean, he picked up, uh, the last two days of duck season, he picked up 30 birds, you know, more than that, 35 birds. And we had, we had another dog, but he's, the old man and he wants to go, 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 go. It's, but it, it changes. So I look at where you're at right now and tra- wanting to travel and do all that stuff. I think that's cool, man. I really do. And I, I applaud you for that and I commend you for that. But I want to go back to what you said about your dog feeding off your energy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very similar to as a coach. I was a coach for a lot of years. And your athletes to feed off your energy. If you're negative, your athletes are going to be negative. If you're jacked up and excited, your athletes are going to be. If you're confident, calm, cool, collected, they are, they're going to be. I got this eight and three quarters year old lab who has been there, done that. He's seen it all. He's retrieved thousands of birds. He's got it, right? There's, he's got it. The last day of season, we had we had this awesome little shoot on this little tiny pond and there's birds coming in as i'm tossing out decoys there's birds coming in in the dark landing in the decoys like feet from me he's sitting on the bank and birds are landing two feet from him and he's looking at them you know tail going like crazy he's all jacked up well between the birds being there daylight like that Lots of stimulation. And then I was excited because I knew what was going to happen. He was a wreck. He was a wreck. He, re- he, he retrieved like he was six months old again. You know, he's going too fast. He's running over birds that are, you know, where this pond is small. So a lot of the birds are falling on the back side of the pond over this big bank. And so they're out of sight. Once they fall, he's got a mark. He runs over there to find them. They're wind washed because they had moment down there for a few seconds and he's running around like an idiot. And I'm going, dude, what's going on with you? And then as the morning progressed, we calmed down. We had a couple birds sail out into the agricultural field and he marked them down and he was able to go out and find those. We hunted him up blind on one, you know, and it was that, that intensity level settled a little bit and he settled in and he did okay. But that's a nine-year-old dog that still gets amped up and jacked up like that. And so it is important how you approach things and how you do things. And I don't know, that's what makes it awesome to me is that dog is a direct reflection of you and what you do. And they are your best buddy. And they live to please. Well, I mean, look, a lot of people that have issues with their dogs being overly excited or breaking or doing this or doing that, they're like, oh, I just don't understand it. I can take my dog out back and I can sit him down and I can throw a bumper all day long and he's just fine. And you go, okay, well, when you do that and you throw that bumper, did you shoot a gun? Well, no. Well, did you blow a duck call beforehand? No. Well, I mean, a duck call is pretty higher than you think. A dog understands quack, quack, quack means bird. That means excited. I get to go play a gunshot means I'm excited. Even something as simple, you know, um, if you looked on my Instagram, you probably saw there's a video of me. I set up my coffin blind and my mutt hut with a launcher next to me, a bunch of poppers in my gun and my goose calls. And I put my dog in that situation first 
before I ever put her into the field because she is an excited dog, right? And I know that when I get out there and I start blowing a goose call, that is excitement out of me. It's going to translate to the dog. And so you have to go through this progression and understand just like an athlete that gets their head in the game before they walk up to the plate or before they get out of the huddle, you have to calm yourself, center yourself so you're operating at your best. You have to do the same thing for your dog or your dog's just never going to have a chance to succeed because the only dogs that are truly 100% calm and stable from the get-go without training into it probably don't have any drive. That's exactly um, right. Yep. And you know, I, I, there's a, there's a joke that runs in the dog training world that there's three types of dogs in the world. There's the dog that's broke, the dog that's going to break and the dog that's not worth anything. So you, I mean, it's drive inherently that creates an opportunity for a dog to break. And I mean, I find myself all the time having to, when we're out on a hunt, I go, guys, she's getting super amped up. Like, I need you, I know this sounds crazy, but I need you to not call these next birds that come in. And we're just gonna have to hope that they come in on their own. And the guys that hunted with me this year, they knew this was a training year for her. And right. that by taking these sacrifices this year, we were going to ensure a good future for the dog. Um, you know, the first goose hunt we went on this year, I got offered to go on an eight man barn burner and I had to turn it down because uh, the other funny thing about me, I don't hunt without my dogs. Yeah. I've, been on, I've been on one hunt in nine years without my dogs. I've had people tell me it's a field hunt. We don't need dogs or, you know, come fly out here to do this hunt. I was like, I'm not doing it without my dog. I hunt because of my dogs. Um, I train because of my dogs. And, you know, I turned that eight man barn burner down because I knew she wasn't ready for it. You know, right. it's going to be right. too much excitement for her. So her first goose hunt consisted of me and a buddy that was doing the shooting for me. We sat next to each other. We set up our decoy spread together. We had her with me and we said, you know what? The very first goose, we're going to try and get to come in without a goose call so that it can just be a shot from you over there. He popped up one shot. I looked over. She was comfortably sitting in her blind. And then I released her on her call name and she went and got it set up for success. So then the next one, we introduced the goose call, a little bit of excitement. I could hear her excitement, but I could manage it at that point and say, quiet, no. Once she calmed down, pop up, dropped it. So the next one, we're both going to shoot. We pop up. I pop up to shoot. He pops up to shoot. I've got an e-caller in my hand at a very low stimulation. I'm not a big fan of burning dogs. I don't think it's right. a good thing to do. I don't an either. An e-caller when used right is a great tool. It's controlled. And so all I did was I used the vibration on her when I popped up and I said, no, and I didn't shoot. As soon as she dropped back in her mutt hut, I shot, she gets to get her retrieve. So it's continually associating that calm demeanor of the dog with success. And like you said, when you're amped up, the dog's amped up. When everyone's chir chop, uh, chirping, talking, getting super excited, the dog gets excited too. So, um, but it's fun, man. Like that's, that's the challenge of a dog. When I see my dog do something wrong, I don't get upset. I go, all right, here's another goal for us to overcome. Yep. Yeah. You know, and, and I'll be completely honest. It took me a while to get to that mindset where, you know, it, because it can be, it can be frustrating and you put a lot of time and effort and work into a dog. You, 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 
I have to chuckle at myself about your story about you take the dog out in the backyard and do all your training and they're 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 perfectly well mannered. That's my dog. And it's gotten and he's he will break on that river. He's pretty good if it's just if it's just me and him. But you throw another dog in the mix and it's game on. And I have to tell guys the same thing you said you said and gotten to the point where I've taken him back, put him in the truck. I have just told guys, yeah, I'm just going to work. I'm just going to, you know, work the dog or guys heads up. He's going to be out there, you know, and, and, and a lot of, in a lot of the situations that we're in, it's easy to make excuses too, because like where you are, our rivers are fast, you know, and you're, you're and those, if you don't get a dog on those birds, immediately they're gone and so he gets them fast but i've got a lot of work to do with my next puppy you know and i'm looking i'm looking at it going what you said being way more intentional and way more deliberate with the training and practicing like you play you know whether it's setting up decoys and and going through all that stuff and shooting and everything so you can get your dog under control because i mean We've all hunted with guys who have dogs that are not under control at all. And it's no fun. And well, frankly, it's dangerous. You said it, you said it perfectly, right? Like it, river hunting is the worst thing you can do for a oh. dog that's running, that's running HRC or AKC, right? Because a river dog needs to cheat to the bank. They don't want to take a straight line because that's, then they're fighting the river. They can't. They can't. A dog, a dog that breaks as long as the bird is dead in the right. water right. is a good but if you think about it would you rather lose four birds or have to get in the boat and make your best effort to go chase them down on the boat or would you rather have that dog in the water and all of a sudden you've got a water swat over a dog head right what's more valuable to you you know and i'm not downplaying the importance of recovering every bird but i can guarantee you i would rather have a duck float down river than someone deafen my dog by shooting over their head Right. Or accidentally water swap my dog, right? I mean, that's right. that's the concept of steadiness. Because I hunted with a guy this year whose dog did the same thing. And his dog, I mean, as soon as guns went off, his dog was in the water. And his his thing was, you know, my dog's just always done that. Like, I've never been able to get it out of him. And it's like, well, every time you let that dog pick up a bird after breaking, you just reinforce that it's okay. Right. If dog floats if that bird floats away and they don't get to get it or you walk out there you know fortunately hopefully if you're working on a breaking scenario you're doing it in still water and that that bird just sits there or right. you walk out and pick it up the biggest trainer that i've found for a dog is denying a retrieve so if a dog breaks you beat them to it i've literally seen times and worked with dogs where we just took off on a dead sprint and grab the dog as fast as we could to beat them to that bird so someone else could pick it up. And then you do what's called poor man bird, poor man, um, poor man singles, where someone takes a bird and they throw the bird five or 10 feet from them. And if your dog breaks, they run over there and they pick it up. That, right. Your dog does not get to pick it up. But right. it's 1000% a safety thing. And a dog that breaks in the water, if you decide to take them on a field hunt and all of a sudden everyone's hunting out of layout lines, mm. that dog's right in the gun blast. Yep. I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. If they're not in the gun blast, they're you're deafening them. And uh, thank God I've never seen it personally happen with a dog get shot, but I can tell you I've heard plenty of stories. 
Yeah, and I'm in the same boat. I've never never seen it happen, but I've heard lots of stories. And <clears throat> it's funny you talk about the not not letting the dog get the bird because that is exactly what I've had to do with 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 mine. And what and make let so one of the guys that we have that I hunt with a lot that's here in the office got a pup, and it was a gift to him through I think his mom and his wife got him the pup. He didn't get to pick it out, didn't get to choose it, and he struggled with that dog. That dog doesn't have a lot of drive, um, but in over the last three years, he's I mean I give him a lot of credit. He sent it to a trainer. And he's, they've gotten the most out of that dog to the point now that dog will go and pick up birds. No problem. He doesn't, you can tell he's not all fired up about it, but he'll do it. And it's been a big help for me because we've just been running my dog for the, and as he's getting older, it's like, I can't, I can't, I can't, he can't pick up 20 birds out of the river. He's nine years old. He can't do that anymore. He can, and he will, but I can't use him for three days after that. He can barely move. Yeah, he can barely move. And I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. So, but knock down a bird, Mac breaks to get it because he wants to beat the other dog to it. It's like, no, sit, stay, come here, no bird, call him back, let Ace get the bird. And then it's like, okay, now it's your turn. And... Really, really had to work on that. But the, you're right; the river changes everything, and a lot of a lot of the rivers we have here are there's well, the main river we hunt here is not very wide. You could pretty much shoot across it, but it's smoking fast. And you watch a river dog. My dog's got to the point where we hunt a lot of the same spots um, continually, and he's figured out that where depending on where the bird falls, how he can go get it. There's one, there's one spot where if the birds fall way on the other side, away from the decoys, he will actually run up the bank above the bird because there's a gravel bar that he can literally like run and swim and he can catch the bird way faster than having to take a straight line across that current. He's figured that out over retrieving hundred, a couple hundred birds right there and he knows. And so it's like when I give him that command, Mackinac, he's gone. And it's like, it's up to him. And he's got it all figured out how to, like you said, cheat the bank, do all these things where on a hunt test or a lot of those things would be like, uh-uh, I can't do that. But I guess what? He picked up 19 birds in one day the other day out of the river. We never lost a bird. You know, and it's you, like. You have to find that happy medium, man. I think it's so like, too. I, you know, I've got a young dog, right? And she's learning the concept of straight out, straight back. Like that's crucial in the hunt test world. Like Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've got her de-cheated. So she will enter the water completely straight. But just like you, we hunt an island on the Missouri. The Missouri is a big river. Big I mean, river. it's 120 yards across and it moves. And, but my big dog and her have both found the sandbar that runs down the backside of it. So yep. they will straight line right out to the bird and then they turn and about face right over to that sandbar and they come <laughs> back. And you have to do it because no dog, can, no. no dog can swim against the Missouri. I don't care who it is, right? Yep. They're going to lose ground and we hunt islands. So if the dog doesn't make the sandbar, then we're getting in the boat. We're running the dog down, which is going to get the, the dog. 
the worst experience ever. The dog's going to be fine because they can swim for 30 minutes straight. Right. But you don't want that. No, and it, it, it makes you nervous. It makes you nervous. So, there's there's spots on the river here. You get down by by the estuary by its mouth where it dumps into the to a bigger river. And it's man, you gotta be paying attention because it's full of log jams, it's full of hairpin turns. And I've seen dogs get sucked underneath those log jams. And luckily I've they've all made it, but I've heard lots of stories of guys losing dogs that get sucked under a log jam because they're trying to get a bird. And you couldn't call them off of it. That was a big thing. I remember the first time I hunted down there, I'm looking at this going, okay, I got 150, maybe 200 yards of river to work with here. Anything that's way out there, I'm going to have to take the dog down river. And if the bird's still floating there, because it hasn't got hung up in a log jam, we're going to have to, you know, I'll, I'll be able to send him then. But figuring out where I can work the dog and where I can't, and then having the ability to command that dog on the fly, I remember, man, I'll never forget that. One morning, we knocked down a pair of Drake Mallards, and one was far, one was close. I could get the close bird. It was close enough for me to run downstream and get. I needed the dog to get the far bird. And, of course, what does Mackinac do? He sight locks on the, on the close bird. And he, when I send him, he takes off that, and I can see he's lined up on that bird. And I said, no, back. He swims right past it, gets the far bird. I was able to run down, get the other bird. We tag teamed him, done. Those are real world hunting scenarios where all that training comes to play. And you've got to, at the end of the day, you've got to be able to count on your dog and rely on your, on your training. And sometimes the rules get followed. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> so that's, that's the fun part about the HRC AKC world, right? Because they have these concepts called poisons or they have concepts called diversions and they're all meant to ensure that a dog, AKC and HRC, one of the primary things are steadiness and control because those two things are what keeps your dog safe. And just like you said, having that diversion or having that poison and your dog going on what you are controlling them to do is what keeps them safe. A good hunting dog will go, will want to get every bird and they'll want to do everything that you want them to do because they're labs, right? Like they're, or they're goldens or they're, they want to please, right? It's inherently right. in their nature to want to please. So if you tell them to run through that brick wall and you can explain that, they're probably going to try it and they're probably going to hurt themselves doing it. Right? I, know, I, mean, I know. How many times has your dog gotten cut up from a hunt because you sent them somewhere you shouldn't have? I had the worst that mistake. Dog, that Go dog ahead. does not have a safety control and steadiness are the safety to that dog. Like the safety to your gun. Come, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. One of the worst things, one of the worst lessons that I ever learned was letting my wife sew up the zipper on my dog's vest. And she looked at that vest and she goes, this thing is shredded. It is torn up. I said, yeah, can you imagine what he'd look like if he didn't wear that? Bingo. <laughs> I mean, barbed wire, Russian olive thorns, sticks in the water, rough rocks. I'm not hunting these, I'm not hunting these beautiful ponds that I used to back in Michigan. It's rugged out here. And I, our dogs take a whooping on the hunting these Western rivers and anything I can do, like you said, it's about safety and control. And then the vest, I mean, if it's real warm and I'm hunting a spot that's open and I'm not worried about it, he doesn't have to wear the vest. But if we're hunting someplace new or it's cold, 
or I, I've got a, a lot of spots are real rugged, he's wearing the vest. He's wearing the vest. And, man, I he wears one out almost every year. I'm on, I'm on year three on a rigum right, right now, but I've patched it and sewn it, and it's done. It finally, it finally gave up the ghost on the last hunt of the year this year. And I mean, that, uh, that's, that's a lot. That's a long time on a vest for a dog. Three years is impressive. That's the exact same reason I vest up my dog. I mean, literally three weeks ago with my 14 month old puppy, um, she, we were running, we were crossing a train track on a set of the Missouri, get trying to get down into the water. And there was barbed wire that I couldn't yep. see. They couldn't yep. see. All of a sudden I hear her slam into that barbed wire and rolls and I'm going, Oh crap. And so she's kind of spooked. Right. And so I've got, I give her a firm sit to wait there until I can figure out what the situation is. She sits, she waits for me. I walk up, I can identify where the barbed wire is. I take a look at her. She's just got a little bitty scratch right here. Nothing yep. doing at all. And the, the vest took the rest of it. But Again, me being able to sit her when she's spazzed out yep. plays huge dividends because that could be a barbed wire minefield, right? And the biggest way to get a dog in trouble is to let them be hurt and spaz out into more trouble. Absolutely. Um, we, we definitely carry med kits. I carry a, you know, a, a med kit with stapler and syringe and all of that stuff on every hunt, uh, but I don't want to use it. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. And we've got man, some of the conditions that we face too. You're talking about ice flows and things like that. Man, I've had a couple I've had a couple scares with Mackinac over the years. There was one where I was hunting downstream of this big ice flow and this ice island basically. It was enormous. I mean, 100 yards long and 50 yards wide. It was huge, big river. And it was a warmer day and there were chunks of ice in the water, you know, but I was hunting the edge of this back eddy and I wasn't shooting any birds that were, you know, in the decoys while well, I sailed one at the very end of the day. And what's he do? He goes over on the other side of the river and he dies and he's back eddied out. He's in a back, he's not going anywhere. So I walk back down the bank and I line him up just above. I'm, I don't bother to look upstream. You know, I know there's ice chunks, but Mac's fast enough to navigate around those ice chunks in the river line him out send him he goes no problem i mean routine right goes over gets the bird brings it starting to come back and i just happened to look up river well guess what had broken loose while we were in that retrieve that long. giant hundred yard long ice chunk the whole thing it's like three train cars floating down the river you know that it's and you can see it and hear it grinding along the bottom and I'm watching, and it's bearing right down on my dog. And he's lined out to come back. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to watch my dog die. And there's nothing I can do. This thing weighs tons. I can't go out and stop it. Going to grind me into the river bottom all right along with the dog. All I could do is, like, get excited. I got excited, like, come on, buddy, come on, buddy, come on, buddy, and just, like, amped him up. And cross my fingers. Well, being excited, he has a tendency to, to to throttle back a little bit when he gets a bird. He's like, I got it. And he enjoys the retrieve. You know what I mean? And I got him amped up, and he kicked it into high gear, and he swam right out, right, right out away from it. 
And, and luckily, it hit the same back heavy that the duck did, too, so it slowed down, but he swam. And it, in the end, it wasn't even close. But I'm watching it come, and I'm going, oh, my gosh. Enough. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. My heart was in my throat. But being, being able to affect my dog's drive by the inflection of my voice you know, and it why I didn't. It wasn't a panic. It was just like cheering him on. Come on, buddy, you got it! And amping him up, he kicked it into high gear and just was gone. And it was like, holy smokes, man! Well, yeah, they're, they are. They are everything, aren't they? I get. I still get chills thinking about that. It's funny because there's a funny technique that when I came over here to Helena, the the Margot girl, the gal that I train with, she uses with her dogs. Um, if it's a short mark. She tells them a really good, easy, easy buster and sends them with the quietest, calmest, like she's trying to put them to bed. If it's a super long mark, she virtually screams their name when she sends them. And I've picked up on that too. Huh. And so it's the same thing with a blind retrieve. So if you're in a field somewhere and you're sending your dog on a blind retrieve, easy, easy, back, might be a 50, 60 yard blind. But if I haul into it, back that means haul but 300 yards <coughs> keep going don't stop that's great you know i did the same thing with my athletes though with my basketball players if i needed them to be calm my my communication with them was calm if i needed them amped up i got amped up you know it's just, it's the same thing Absolutely. and I, I don't think we think about that enough when we're working with dogs and and everything <clears throat> what, what we do but Anyway, man, this has been a killer conversation. We're, we're running over an hour, and I actually have to go get my daughter from school. Um, but I want to—I want to do this again. <laughs> we need to, and we're not that far apart. About six hours. We need to jump in a blind together sometime. Hey, I'm down. And let me know when you actually want to talk to someone that knows something about dog training instead of the person that's trying to learn it all. I can get you connected with people that actually know what they're talking about. People are probably listening to this thinking, this poser, he doesn't know anything about it. And <laughs> I will tell you, it's the truth. I don't know anything about it. I love it. Yeah, and that I think at the end of the day, that's that's what matters. You know, I mean, I've had some pretty – been fortunate on the podcast to have a couple pretty big names in the dog world on the podcast and you almost feel like oh man I don't you know I don't know what I'm talking about but and that's their livelihood that's what they do guys like me and you are doing it because we love it because it's fun and and they and they love it too they love it too but yeah I let's let's talk more about that and let's do another one of these soon you bet buddy I'm available anytime <laughs>